Open up your Bibles, if you haven't already, to the book of James. We're going to be talking about chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. And you can follow along up here on the screen what the points will be. There are approximately 1,025,110 words in the English language. The average person has a vocabulary of around 11,000 words, and you speak somewhere around the average of 9,500 words per day, depending on if you're male or female, actually. There's over 350 billion text messages sent per day worldwide. There's around 3 billion phone calls per day, just here in the U.S., There's over 100 billion emails sent every single day. And if you saw my inbox, you would believe I get about half of them sometimes. And there's approximately 6,000 tweets going on every second. 6,000. 6,000. 6,000. But with all this attempt of communication, why is it so hard for us to understand, and to be understood. Why is it growingly seem like, at least to me anyway, it's very difficult to hear what people are really trying to say, even with all of this communication. And instead of our God-intended life-giving words, our communication has become angered and frustrated and confounded. We live in a society that actually thinks you can say something on Facebook digitally and not really mean it physically, like it has nothing to do with your physical world. And it's not, it shouldn't impact you. And this one gets all of us in this room. We are entitled as Americans because of the First Amendment that we can say what we want, when we want, where we want, and, and how we want and that, is, that gets all of us, because we have the freedom of speech, right? So no matter what country you're from or what government you're under, your words are given to you as a gift by God. And he uses his words for life-saving purposes. And in our sin, we use ours for life-taking so much of the time. Whether you know it or not, your words are an outpouring of who you are, because they are your thoughts, your beliefs, your hopes. They are your, your life. They show people what you have faith in or what you don't have faith in. In sin, in our sin, our war on words have become a battleground where we have dug foxholes and we are standing waiting with our shotguns ready to blast at the next person that offends us. We are standing on top of skeletons and corpses from the life that we take from our sinful, angry speech. Sin has completely altered the way that we should use our words in the way that God intended for us to speak. Here in the book of James, and throughout the entire Bible, actually, we learn that Our words are not really ours, and I hope that that's what we get from this today. That because we know, because of biblical theology, and we go back and we look at what the word has to say, we were created in God's image and given words by God because, as James puts it in this book, we are a kind of first 
fruit. We are his creatures, meant to reflect him in all ways, including our words. So we must receive God's righteousness in our speech because God's words are life-giving. So we must receive God's righteousness in our words if we're to reflect him in this way. And if you're in Christ Jesus, this is more especially true. Because our words are now under God's domain and should be used for his righteousness, not our selfishness. We must be constantly putting away sinful anger in our words. It's a daily thing. So today, right here in this passage, James 1, 19-21, what I want us to see is that we must receive God's righteousness in words by putting away sinful anger because God's word is soul-saving. So we must receive God's righteousness in words by putting away sinful anger because God's word is soul-saving. So let's read the passage here in James. It says in 19-21, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls." The first point I want to make here is that is about God's righteousness in words. This book, James, it was written by the brother of Jesus and considered to be the Proverbs of the New Testament. It very much parallels the Proverbs sermons that Chet has been preaching for the past several weeks. And he asked me to preach this today because it really kind of covers a lot of the same topics that he is going to be getting into in our speech. This book is specifically about our life and our doctrine. Does our life line up with what we say we believe? Is our everyday practical life being lived the way we claim our faith to be? He's writing specifically in this book to Palestinian Christian house churches who are converted Jews and are suffering from this growing dispute in this time when there are there's a lot of persecutions, so there's a lot of factions, and there's a lot of trials and tribulations going on for these people. And he's dealing specifically with a lot of sinful matters that just creep up when we're under pressure. And this is one of them. So his primary concern is, are people living out this, this disparity, disparity between how our life is lived and what, what we say we believe? Are we being, he says, are we being doers of the word, not just hearers only? I encourage you to read this book. Go back sometime and just, just read through this because there's so much more here than just what I'm preaching on this little section. So much more here in this very, very rich book of James. We want to be doers of the word, not just hearers. We want our doctrine, what we say we believe, to literally be lived out before people. That is what we want, and that's what I want to address here today. Before we get really into the specifics, I think it's really important, though, to kind of zoom out and think about words for just a minute, what words are, where they came from, and a little bit of biblical theology about them. In this section right before ours for today, it says, of his own 
will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Well, we know that words, like I said, are confounded. So why? Why are they so skewed and mixed up and struggled? Well, words in the beginning began with God. So we need to kind of back up and think about what Genesis has to say about our words. In Genesis 1-3, you don't have to turn here. Let me just, I'm going to hit some of the highlights. It says, Genesis 1-3 says, And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God created all things in existence by his words. He was the first person to speak, not man. Then in Genesis 20, 1, 26 to 27, God said, let, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So we've been created in God's image. And in, in, in one of those ways we've been created in God's image is to speak and to have words and to be able to communicate. And we're actually meant in those words to give life by our words, like God does in his image. And we don't literally speak things into existence and see a tree pop out of the ground, we, we, but we give life. We join God in the life-giving message of his word. And then in Genesis two nineteen, it says, The Lord God had formed every beast out of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to man to see what he would call them. So God gave Adam the ability to speak using his words to join him in the operation and creation kind of story, right? God gives us that same ability. He gives us words to join with him in the process of life giving. And in Genesis 2.23, these are Adam's words right after God created woman. He says, this is at last, this is Adam, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God creates woman, gave her to Adam, and Adam had the privilege of using words to name her and bless God for that. Our words are meant to bless and to give life. God gave us the ability to reflect him through our speech, to instruct, to bless, to bring order, and to join him in the operation and care of his world. So what happened to words? Why do they not seem that way much anymore? Why do they seem more life-taking? Well, in short, we see the very next chapter, Genesis 3, sin enters into the world. So right after the account of Adam naming the woman, we see in Genesis 3 that Satan, dressed as a serpent, tempts Eve with the fruit, right? Using communication, actually, crafty communication, the opposite of what God intended for communication to be. And he speaks lies, and he causes death, and he causes destruction with his words. He convinced the woman to take the fruit that God commanded them not to eat. And then sin entered into the picture and broke words, fractured words, destroyed words. Eve believed Satan's lies at that point and took the fruit and gave it to Adam. And instead of Adam using God's gift of words to combat the situation and run to God and cry for help, what did he do? He took the fruit and he believed the lies. 
and sin entered into the world for the very first time. Sinful words are ultimately against God. Our sin on words are ultimately against God. It says in Genesis 3, 12 through 13, this is Adam's response to God about the fruit. He says, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done to the, the woman? The, and the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So you see what just happened there? They weren't really using communication for life-giving purposes. They were, they were blame-shifting, and they were using words to twist the truth and not really taking the blame for the sin that they had just committed. Adam actually tried to blame his wife. He said, she gave it to me, Lord. It's your fault. You created her wrong. You're the one that messed up, not me. I didn't do anything wrong. Kind of, that's what he said. But it's more than that. What's subtle that we don't see here, we don't think about here, and we don't think about in our struggle, sin struggle with words, is that in the moment of that blame, we're placing ourselves over and above God's sovereign authority. When you blame, you hurt with words, you give into that temptation, and you snap in anger. You're judging. You're casting judgment. You're placing yourself above. I failed to see this for 38 years. I haven't ever, I, I'm, I'm starting to learn this. In that moment, you've crossed the line from humbly and meekly falling under God's created order and accepting his loving providence in your life for that situation, that circumstance. And you're placing yourself in the judgment seat. And you're casting judgment down upon the situation. And it's ultimately against God in that situation, in any situation. So that's the biblical theology about what went wrong with words. I hope that's clear. I thought that would be important for us to touch on that. But I think what's really important for us to not do is just to kind of freeze in fear and think, oh, my words are, are, are full of sin and I can't speak and I don't know what to do. And, you know, I'm just kind of stuck and frozen and, and feel like we're defeated Let's not be defeatists. Let's not feel like this is too difficult of a battle for us because really it is. It is too difficult of a battle for us. That's why we have passages like this in James. So if you struggle with your sin on words, like I do, probably you do, we need to get into some of these passages. We need to think and pray specifically about what these actually have to say to us because this battle on our words is too difficult for us to fight alone. We need one another. That's one really important thing I think that's easy to miss in this passage as he gets started here, is that he says, beloved brothers. He's speaking to them as a family here. He sees that, he, that this family, in their broken speech, is a dysfunctional family. The way it's operating, and it needs to operate functionally. So we want to address this as a family Redeemer Church, we are a family. If we are struggling in our sin on words, we need to address this together. Brothers and sisters, together. This is a family affair. I was just reading the pamphlet that Kyle put out there on Family Feuds, I think is what it's entitled. And... um, 
it just got me thinking about how easy it is for us to forget that it feels like our, our sin, on, our, our struggle in words is almost hopeless sometimes if you have family, family feuds. So you might know what I mean. But in Christ Jesus, we are meant in that struggle on words to display the glory of Christ. So let me get into this so you can see what I'm talking about. So here we've seen that God was the first one to speak and he gave man his words and the ability to join with him in giving life through his words. But we know now our words is more of a battleground rather than a life-giving garden that they should be. So now let's see from James 1, 19 and 20, those two verses, how we can avoid sinful, angry words. So, second point is put away sinful words. Some of the specific things he says here is to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. What does it mean to be quick to hear? It means to slow down, right? It actually means to slow down. Being quick to hear means slow down and listen and ask questions. Understand the situation. Don't jump too quick to a judgment. Listen with your mind. Know your own sin triggers well. Know that there are certain times of the day you may not want to have those difficult conversations. And in this, you want to reflect God's long suffering in the way you listen to those who you may be struggling in conversation with. Are you seeking understanding from the other person or are you seeking to be understood when you're trying to learn and understand and be quick to hear? So we need to slow down in our speech. We need to be careful and assess the situation. This will be a lifelong battle for some of us. It is for me. Because we can be too quick to respond, which leads to folly. Proverbs 10.19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. James N. Solomon is telling us, listen to the situation before you jump into it with judgmental speech. And then he says, in verse 19, be slow to speak. Again, wait till you've heard all the details. Just slow down in the, in this, in the conversation. I think, it seems like a lot of times we think our words are more important than they really are. We just want to get them out. I know this from experience. So, when we've been wrong, though, when we've been really, really wronged, and we feel like we need to quick and jump onto the problem and try to fix it with our words... We need to remember that God has been eternally wronged by us in our sin. God was slow to anger. He was slow to speak, slow to anger in that. Because at the moment of Adam and Eve's sin, we deserve death. We do not deserve God's mercy. So let the gospel of Jesus Christ filter your speech and the way that you respond in even the most difficult situations that you feel like need to be pounced on. God is slow to speak, so we must be too if we're to reflect him. Speaking with grace is a difficult thing sometimes. It really is. It's going to look and sound different in a lot of situations. It's not always going to sound nice and sweet. It is going to be hard. And it is sometimes going to have to reflect the exact way Christ spoke difficult, 
difficultly to people in the Bible. Think of the way he spoke to Peter, even, and some of the ways he spoke to him. But we don't have to slam others with our words and hurt them. That's not the goal. Matthew, because it says in Matthew 12, 36-37, this is Jesus speaking, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I'm going to cast judgment on somebody, then we need to be ready to receive the exact same judgment. We will be held accountable for everything, including our words. They're not just hot air that float out into space. They're eternal. Our words are eternal, and they're meant to be eternal. Our words need to reflect the father of life, not the father of lies. James is saying something next that at first glance seems a little strange. If you've never read this passage before, he says, after he says slow to speak, he says, be slow to anger. Well, why is he connecting anger to speech? He's not saying once you've done everything to listen carefully and try to handle the situation, then get angry and handle it some way you feel necessary. He's saying be slow to anger. We need to be really careful with this one. I think. Proverbs 14.29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exacts folly. Are you more defined by great understanding or exacting folly in the way that you quickly respond and jump to anger? Sinful anger doesn't display the glory of Christ. It displays our foolishness. It looks silly. And it doesn't display the long-suffering and mercy and grace that we have been given in Christ Jesus. Think about that. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It says it numerous times in the Old Testament. God was patient with us even though we sinned against him eternally. We did not deserve his his care to be slow to anger. We don't, we don't deserve that in sin. Moving on into verse 20, it says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man. So here he goes on more with the, the anger. James is now linking our sinful anger to our inability to produce God's righteousness. Again, may seem like a strange connection at first, but if we think about what I said earlier, how our angry words in our, in, our, in our anger is sort of casting judgment down upon others. That is like a, a legal casting judgment, which is opposite of what God's, God does in his righteousness toward us. We cannot produce this righteousness in and of ourselves. It comes from an outside source. In ourselves, all we want to do is cast an evil judgment upon people. So let me... Illustrate it this way. I love this time of year, summer, spring. If you know me, I hate cold weather. I love the summer. Cold weather's gone. It's warm. It's sunny, usually. And this time of year, there's a lot of rain and things are growing, right? Well, I love gardening. I can't say that I'm great at it, but I love it. And I try really hard. And I have a little plot of dirt in my backyard that I try to grow a garden in. 
Now, that plot of dirt cannot produce anything in and of itself. It's just a plot of dirt. It needs me to come in, till the soil, add fertilizer, organic fertilizer, okay? And I need to part the dirt. I need to make the rows, and I need to add the seeds. That dirt doesn't have any ability in and of itself to do that. It needs this outside help who has the authority, has the know-how, has the ability, has the best judgment, hopefully, to do this. And when I say hopefully, I mean in, my, in myself, to implant these seeds and to produce the right fruit. If you get my illustration here, God is that authority over us. We need God in his righteousness in our hearts to implant the healthy word in us and to care for us and to water and nourish us for us to receive that implanted word. The garden plot of our desperate souls needs God's outside authority and his righteousness to do that in us. We cannot generate this in and of ourselves or else we become the weed-infested garden that I'm probably growing rather than the real healthy garden that I want to have. We need God's righteousness. We need his, his care. We need his concern. And we, we can see that right here in this passage. So this, so this word righteousness is, is that casting judgment sense that we need to know that as we're speaking anger into a situation, we are placing ourselves above in authority, and that's not what we want to do. We want to do what James is going to tell us to do in this, in this next section. So, we've seen so far the biblical foundation of our words, where they come from, how we receive them. That was in Genesis 1. And then we saw how our, the folly of our words have made them fall in Genesis 3. And we've seen here in 19 and 20, verses 19 and 20, that we are to seek God's righteousness and put away, take off, take off that sinful anger. And I pray that we will understand that in our sin, we, we're only casting judgment on people and that we need help from outside, from an outside source. So now let's look at verse 21, where we're going to see how God comes in from the outside and implants his word into us to save our souls. So, receive God's soul-saving word. So it says in verse 21, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This filthy, rampant wickedness is interesting language, but he's saying this talk and this behavior is not just wicked and bad. It is rampantly bad. It's super abundantly really bad, meaning overboard. That's what he's saying. It's really, really bad. It's not what God intends of his followers. Because remember, that's who James is speaking to here. And there's no point in it. It's not producing anything. We're as good as unbelievers in this kind of talk and behavior and anger. And he's saying, put it away, cast it off, get rid of it. It's no part of you in your new creation in Christ. It doesn't reflect the way that we say we believe in Jesus. It's not the good life and doctrine that we want to be 
obedient to. And he's saying also that this is wickedness. Now, this word wicked is ill will or desire to do harm. It's maliciousness. It's evil intent. And this kind of talk is actually level with Satan's evil intent. This kind of wickedness is not just somewhere else out in the universe for someone else to go to and do bad things like in the comic books. No, this ability is right in our hearts. This ability to do this wickedness, we have this capacity already. We're born with it. And you could say that it's even like murdering someone in our hearts with this kind of evil, this kind of wickedness that he's talking about here in our speech and in our anger. That's the evil intent he's talking about here. Even Jesus himself warns us about this in the Gospels because Christ says in Matthew 5.22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to count to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now this makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? This passage that I just read, because of what I've said about how our angry words are casting judgment on people, and how if we're ready to take that, if we're ready to cast that judgment, we need to be ready to receive that judgment. I think it makes that passage make a lot more sense. So instead of casting judgment, what does James say here we need to do? He says, receive with meekness, the implanted word. Meekness, that's humility. That's the patience. That's the long-suffering. That's the uh, quick to hear and slow to speak. It's not a difficult thing to understand. But we need to then do what? What's it say? We need to receive with meekness what? The implanted word. The implanted word. We need to receive the implanted word if we want to live. Without it, we're on our deathbed. We don't even know it. You may actually be sitting here with your heart actually beating in your chest. I hope it is anyway. And, you're really, and you may be a healthy person physically, but spiritually, your heart outside of Christ is, is diseased. It's clogged. It's hardened. And in need of this implanting of God of God's word to beat again before it's too late. Your heart is flatlined and it's dead already. It has been all this time and you don't even know it. You're actually blind to it. You need the implanted word of Christ to give you a new heart, a new beating heart that's full of life and vitality once again. And that is the implanted word. And if you have never heard this ever before, Friends, I address this for you and your salvation that you would understand and believe that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We were born that way. And without Christ, our heart, our spiritual heart is stone and it's dead and it's not beating. We may be beating physically. You may have a pulse, but our spiritual heart is dead. We are born in a state of sin and needs this external help, this help from the outside. And Christ is the one who does this for us. Christ's heart is all that can save our souls, all that can save our hearts. His implanted heart into us is what 
makes our spiritual hearts beat again. If you don't allow Christ to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, you go down into the pit of hell with a heart of stone. That's what the entire word of God is teaching us. And I pray that if you've never heard this before, you would talk to one of us, talk to Caleb, talk to Kyle, talk to me, talk to anyone here. We all, all of us at Redeemer understand the gospel is essential for every day. And it affects our words, it affects our lives, and it should, and it does. You and I are sinners separated from God because of this unrighteousness that we're born with. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life, life that you and I could never live, so that he could die for unbelievers who would come to faith in him, repent of sin, have faith in him, and he could implant a new heart in them and that they could live once again. He died a dreadful death on a cross that you and I deserve for our sin that we could never actually really fathom the pain and the suffering. We can't fathom that. We don't want to, and we don't have to, because Christ did that for us. We get that new heart because of the sacrifice that Christ paid on this cross, on his cross for us. We don't deserve this. But we receive this freely because God is eternally gracious with sinners like you and I. And the fact that he puts this in his word for us to read and see, wow, we're actually doing this wrong when we're not being quick to hear or slow to speak. And my anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God. That is God's grace for us right there in his word. So we need to run hard toward the gospel with our words. Friends, the gospel message is the ultimate life-giving message. It's the only thing that can get our dead hearts beating again and implant in us this new life that we need. The implanted word is able to save your souls. The implanted word is Christ. The implanted word is the gospel. Our struggle with words is ultimately a gospel-related issue. It really is. It's not a personality thing. It's not an anger thing. It's not maybe you had too little food that day, and you're hungry, and you want to just speak without any inhibitions? I mean, I know this because I struggle with this. It is a gospel issue. It affects everyone around you. It's not a private problem. It's not something that just affects you. It affects everyone around us. So our casting judgment and sin and life-taking is a lack of trusting in God and not receiving and not living under his authority. If we're trusting in Christ, then praise God. As I know a lot of you are. I know most of you in this room. And so praise God. But we're the ones where we need to be actively pursuing, putting away those sinful words. It's an active pursual. Just wait for it to happen. We need to be slow to anger, slow to speak, quick to listen, reflecting God's righteousness. And remembering that this is a learning process, right? It takes time. We need to be patient with one another. Those of us who struggle this way, 
be patient with us, please. And I and forgive me if I've ever sinned against you with my words. Because I'm sure I have. But God has brought life out of death by sending us the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to our dead hearts about the saving grace of his son. Our hurtful, angry words, they reflect the poison that are in our souls. They reflect the dead stone heart that's in us that keeps God's garden from growing. But the gospel changes the very nature and source of our words back to his creation intent, and even better, because of who we are now in Christ Jesus that didn't exist then. Because Jesus is the implanted word that we need. So, once we recognize this, we can once again give life as we have received God's righteousness in our words. The gospel is the power to change us in this way. So when you mess up, you go to Christ, you, you seek repentance, you ask reconciliation to those you have sinned against. That is a good thing. Don't think of that as a bad thing. This isn't a confrontation. This is a good thing. Reconciliation is the hope of the gospel. We have been reconciled to Christ. You can reconcile yourself to one another. That's a good thing. As we're seeking to put away our sinful, angry words. And then we're going to join in God. Join with God by receiving his soul-saving message, the implanted word. And once we've received that, we now are empowered by the Holy Spirit to then take that message out into the world, to this dead world, who needs to hear this message desperately. God's soul-saving word, Christ Jesus. Those of us who have been saved by God, we were saved by the hearing of the word and then the believing of that word. By, and we received that, actually, by other sinful people. So in our sin, we still get to speak life into this dead world. God uses words to do this. He chose words to be life. Started creation with words. He's carrying it on through the gospel message as he creates and recreates through the gospel message. Let the gospel renew and refresh our source of words. Let God implant you with the life-giving word of his truth, which is Christ, who is able to save your soul. And let this radically change your words. Let this radically change our communication. And, let, and just put off sinful anger. Let your words give life to others. Because God's words can be our words. So we must receive God's righteousness in words by putting away sinful anger. Let us pray. Father God, we see that we are all foolish in our speech. And then our speech has been deeply altered by sin. But you have not left us helpless. But you have given us the implanted word which is able to save our souls. God, we thank you. We praise you for that. And I pray, God, that we would receive that with meekness, as this word says. Forgive us for our angered, judgmental talk that causes death and destruction. And God, give us new hearts that beat for reconciliation, which we already have in Christ Jesus. And may we seek reconciliation with others that we have wronged in our words, which is life-giving in itself. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.